to Liberty Unlocked. I am Don Watkins. So an issue that came up in today's conversation was this concept from the economist Arnold Kling about, called, that he calls the three languages of politics. And Arnold's a really interesting thinker. Uh, I interviewed him a few years ago in the Iran Brook Show. But his thesis is that, in the U.S. at least, progressives, conservatives, and libertarians are effectively three tribes speaking different languages. So progress, progressives are looking at and talking about the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed. Conservatives are looking at and talking about the world in terms of civilization versus barbarism. And libertarians, he says, are talking about the world in terms of freedom and coercion. And Kling's point is that even when these groups support the same policy, they do so couched in these different terms. And when they disagree, communication is hard because they're thinking along these different axes. In the interview, I make the point that one solution that's been offered to this is that we should speak the language of the person we're trying to convince. But I think this comes off as manipulative and disingenuous, and that is definitely not the direction that you want to go in. And so I want to talk about a better approach, but I think to really get at this, we need to um, come at it sort of from an unusual angle. So I'll come back to that in a second. One other point I want to make just before I, as I'm setting this up is that my guest, uh, who we'll get to in a second, Sean, he brought up the work of Jonathan Haidt. And Jonathan Haidt ha makes some similar points to Arnold and some really interesting points that I really want to comment on at some point, but I just don't feel yet familiar enough with his work to really do that publicly. But I, I want to come back to it because I think it's it's really fascinating for how to think about politics and communication and how not to. So I commit this issue from an objectivist perspective, the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. And you might assume that objectivists kind of fit into the libertarian way of looking at the world in terms of freedom and coercion. And I mean, there's something to that, right? But it's not totally true. So it's really important that objectivism views uh politics as emerging out of deeper issues in philosophy, particularly in this uh, context, ethics. We don't just start with, okay, we're for freedom and against coercion. There's a whole argument for why human flourishing in a social context requires freedom and why the only thing that can restrict freedom is coercion. We reject this view that even defining freedom, let alone the desire for it, is written on every heart. We, It's a complex conclusion and it and this is what i find really fascinating to think about freedom as a concept or individual rights as a way of understanding what freedom is these were ideas that developed historically and that had to develop historically through different stages and that development is important and so i just want to go through it because i think we'll get some interesting insights onto this whole three languages phenomenon Obviously, this is just an overview, but we can see that like the first gropings towards freedom are really when human beings, in effect, reject anarchy and said that, all right, we're going to establish some government to set rules to keep the peace as a precondition of human existence. 
So another way to put that would be the first step on the road to freedom was rejecting barbarism and embracing civilization. It was actually trying to organize society in some form, organizing it towards you know more or less predictable rules. And I mean, it, that really was an advance. It was better than what came before, which was you know just pure tribal warfare and unpredictability, and you you really made possible the beginnings of civilization. But the problem is is that for most of human history. The basic rule was that those with power could do whatever they wanted, and they used their power at the expense of those without power. And we can see then that in many respects, the pre-modern era was defined by this oppressor-oppressed relationship between those with power and those without it. Now, in the objectivist account, freedom arises when the power of the government is brought under objective control and used to protect individual rights. That's when government becomes the servant of the citizens rather than the master. And now this never happened fully, but it was identified by the founding fathers and the thinkers who had kind of led up to them as an ideal, like that's what we have to strive for. And so for in the US, for instance, I mean, you continue to have government acting as literal master and as an oppressor of blacks with slavery. And I mean, that's just one and the, the worst example, but nobody was fully free. What you had was a significant number of people who were very free, freer than anyone had ever been in history. And what this led to was the Industrial Revolution. And you can think of the Industrial Revolution as just an explosion in knowledge, science, progress, wealth, individual autonomy, peace during the 19th and early 20th century. One point that Ayn Rand stresses, particularly in her article for The New Intellectual, the, the first chapter or introduction of her book by that name, is that none of this, while it was happening, was properly conceptualized by intellectuals. They were not explaining this fast change in human affairs in rational terms and helping people understand it, understand how to cope with it, understand what policies need to be instituted in order to protect it and improve it. And in particular, what you had with Marx, who now is writing around this time, is an attempt to define what was happening during the Industrial Revolution in terms of the pre-modern aristocratic feudal era. Instead of recognizing a new phenomenon, that we're living in an era of unimaginable like fortunes that had never existed in history, but fortunes earned not through exploitation, but by free individuals producing in an increasingly flourishing world, he says, no, 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 no. this is just a same old version, or rather a new version of the same old oppressor-oppressed relationships that we've seen in feudal times and before. So... Then if we kind of look for, well, what's the conservative perspective on this change and the changes that would happen during the rest of the 20th century, um, there's this increase they see and are troubled by, this increasing individualism and autonomy in society, where people aren't forced to obey tradition and society, where gender roles are, traditional gender roles are breaking down, and where 
you're getting a completely different way of life. And instead of seeing this as an advance or fully as an advance, it's packaged together as this is a breakdown of civilization. It's, oh my God, people are rejecting religion. They're having sex for pleasure instead of pumping out babies and they're enjoying their wealth. They're getting divorced if they're not happy. There's, they're, they're seeing individualism and individuals living these independent lives as inherently or connected to the breakdown of civilization, the rise of barbarism. So we see multiple lines of pushback against freedom and coercion from people who do not like what is happening under freedom. And what they really don't like, you can crystallize under one word. It's selfish. People are pursuing their own happiness, and we don't like that. And so to justify the attacks on selfishness unleashed by freedom, they're couching their criticism mainly in terms of oppressor-oppressed and civilization barbarism. They refuse to recognize and take seriously that the selfishness unleashed by freedom is radically different than the political power unleashed against citizens in the pre-free world, and that it's radically different from the barbarism that occurred in the pre-civilized world. In effect, they have no concept of individualism the long-term pursuit of happiness through your own judgment via thinking, production, and mutually beneficial trade. And so what the overall point I'm driving at here is that the objectivist view, or at least my take on the objectivist view, is that the language of oppressor-oppressed and civilization barbarism comes from a legitimate analysis of previous social organizations illegitimately applied to freedom. Now, this seems like it could pose a persuasion problem, right? Because how do you get people to value life under freedom if they don't like what it means, if they don't like selfishness? And the answer has, I think, two aspects. So the first is you have to clearly conceptualize freedom and life under freedom, which really means you have to reconceptualize selfishness. And that's what Yaron Brook and I do in our book, Free Market Revolution. We argue that freedom, if you properly understand what it means, does unleash selfishness. But selfishness in Ayn Rand's sense of a long-term thought production and trade where you're not sacrificing yourself to others nor others to yourself. Now, you might think, okay, that's great, Watkins, but like, why will anybody care? I mean, if they don't like selfishness, they don't like selfishness. And here we get to the second aspect. So in objectivism, there's an idea that values exist in a hierarchy and the source of all our other legitimate values is ultimately the alternative of life or death, that things are good insofar as they are bolstering or merging from or, or play a role in the pot and the process that keeps us alive, or they're bad because they lead us away from that path and ultimately towards death. And so objectivism's primary value we think of in terms of human life, or as we'll sometimes put it, human life and happiness or human flourishing, which are just different ways of capturing the same thing. Life in a state that is healthy and, and able to foster ongoing life in the strongest way possible. But that's only the fundamental alternative. It gives rise to many other value alternatives, right? You can think of these as like perspectives on or components of or aspects of the fundamental alternative of life or death. So in medicine, right, it might be health versus disease 
Or if you're thinking about wealth, it's prosperity versus poverty. Or in law, it's justice versus injustice. From our perspective, these are all different ways of looking at life or death. They're kind of sub-issues under that category. And here's the really interesting thing. Your hierarchy is not automatically consistent. You can value human life. Um, that can be the thing that's most crucial and deeply important to you, your life and the desire to enjoy it. But you can embrace other values that clash with it. You know, the um, take environmental issues, right? Most people genuinely want what's best for human life, but in environmental areas, they think we should be green, which means not to have an impact on nature. If you take that seriously, human beings would suffer and die because we flourish by impacting nature. We have to impact nature. We have to produce in order to flourish. And the thing is, you can make this conflict clear to people and you can show them that they have to choose between pro-human and anti-impact. And most people, given that choice, if it's really explained, will choose to be pro-human. Now, not all will. Some people genuinely don't value human life. Again, it's not, no value is written on our heart in this way. And there's no way to persuade such people because there's nothing else to appeal to. There's no higher value or deeper value. But for freedom, there is. That's what we're going to come to is that freedom and selfishness too, these can be, uh, you can make them appealing by appealing to deeper values and ultimately to life itself. So let's take the issue of selfishness. In the objectivist view, selfishness stands in a similar relationship to valuing life that impacting nature does for human flourishing. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same point that um, selfishness is a perspective on what it means to value life. It means to pursue your life is to pursue your life. It is to take the actions that will allow you to thrive and enjoy yourself. To say, I value human life and I'm against selfishness, we believe, is, is a contradiction because selfishness is how human beings achieve life and happiness. But it's not just that you connect selfishness to more fundamental values, life or death. To understand and value selfishness, you also need to integrate it with more derivative values. So, for example, like a person, if they're thinking about selfishness, would want to know, wait, like... I, I love love. Is love selfish? What about having children? I love my children. How is that selfish? Um, what would it mean to be selfish about your career, money, and all the things I care about? Are which, which of these values is right? Which is wrong? Which integrate together? Which clash? You have to resolve that. But it's the same thing on environmental issues. It's not enough that someone sees, oh, anti-impact contradicts human flourishing. They also need to say, okay, what does human flourishing require when it comes to our use of energy or our relationship with different species? So the lesson here is that changing people's political views in fundamental ways is enormously difficult, but it's also possible. It's possible because at the most fundamental level, most people, at least in the countries that have been shaped by the Enlightenment, they value their lives. And you can make the case that if you value your life, you have to value selfishness and the social system that protects and unleashes selfishness, freedom. And that will lead to many of the things that you already do value. Security, prosperity, progress, peace, harmony, autonomy, choice, health, etc., etc. But it's hard because there's no single argument that's going to persuade people of that. 
to persuade them, you really do have to reconceptualize a vast array of human life. There's no way around that. Learning to value freedom, in other words, is an undertaking. But as I discuss in my Persuasion Mastery course, it's not quite as daunting as it seems because there's actually relatively few what I call framing elements, methods, assumptions, and goals that make up our framework supporting all our other beliefs and that it's possible to change frameworks and improve people's frameworks relatively rapidly and relatively easily. On top of that, to get to a free society, you don't need everyone to go through this process. That ultimately what you really need, and this is something Ayn Rand stresses throughout her work and I definitely think is right, um, you need the people in the business of conceptualizing the world to be doing it by the right framework or at least essentially the right framework. So that's sort of you know my take on the three languages. I think there is, it's, it's, a, it's a correct observation but the way to address it is really to step back and recognize that its source is a wrong way of conceptualizing the world and that the solution is to help people conceptualize the world in clear terms rooted ultimately not just in a political alternative of freedom versus coercion, but ultimately in the deepest metaphysical moral alternative of life and death. All right, so that is a long rant. I apologize for that, but I thought there was some interesting stuff there. I do want to get to today's guest, Sean Malone. Sean is the creative director for the Foundation of Economic Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE. And in particular, he's really mastered using video and stories to grow an audience for pro-liberty ideas. And I really want to encourage you guys to listen to this one, especially the last 20 or 30 minutes, which are just jam-packed with, I think, some of the most interesting ideas we've talked about in this podcast so far. So I hope you'll listen and love to hear what you think. Final notes, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is sign up for my newsletter and free Persuasion Bootcamp email course at donswriting.com. You can also support the show financially by visiting libertyunlocked.com or clicking the link in the show notes. Every dollar goes to improving the show and helping us reach as many people as possible. Now, on to the conversation with Sean Malone. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. So we were introduced by our mutual friend, Ezra Drake, and he was really enthusiastic, particularly about, like, it's very rare for people to be interested in liberty and also be interested in storytelling. Like, most of the people who are attracted and get serious about out of the mainstream ideas um, they tend to be, particularly if they make it their profession, very much the kind of people who will plow through Hayek and like, you know, they're just ready to read a litany of like very dense abstract ideas. Um, and yet one of the things we've seen is that, I mean, if you take Ayn Rand, who has a track record of reaching, you know, millions of people, stories are super powerful when they're effective at communicating ideas and when they're engaging on their own merits. And so why don't you just start with a little bit about sort of your background and what you do right now? Yeah, so um, I am the creative director for the Foundation for Economic Education. I've worked there for the last uh, dang near four years, actually, very close to four. And um, 
my background before that is all creative work. So it was always, I, I was not an economist. I didn't, I didn't go to school for that. I went to school for music. And I worked in, I got a um, bachelor's in composition and a master's in, in composition for film and like film scoring, film new media. Sure. And then I worked in New York City as a uh, assistant music supervisor for a little bit at a commercial music house that was doing, you know, giant ads, Super Bowl ads, stuff like that for Mercedes, McDonald's, Kit Kat, Hershey's, whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, then I went to Los Angeles because I thought I wanted to be a film composer. Um, and I worked as a, um, music manager overseeing a bunch of live performers on Holland America's cruise ships for, uh, Barry Manilow's company actually for a little bit. The dream man, living I, the dream. Right. Oh, well, actually that was a fun gig. Cause I, I would, I would bounce sort of bounce from ship to ship. I oversaw four different ships and all the instrumental performers on all of those ships. So I would pretty much spaced out LA, but I would fly out to, you know, Copenhagen or, or Lisbon or wherever. And I would hop on a ship for a week and then I, would, you know, do whatever I needed to do there, coaching or equipment issues, dealing with management, stuff like that. And then, you know, fly back to LA and then a week later fly to Alaska, whatever. It was a pretty fun gig. Um, and then I was a music editor for a software company that made, still makes a plugin for Avid and Premiere and stuff like that. It's a, a software company that uh, innovated around the need for music editors. So I was a music editor putting other music editors out of work, more or less. All right, way to make um, friends. The, the software itself would, um, after I and a couple other people who worked with me would sort of piece together the um we would make the decisions for what sections of music could go together effectively and then the algorithm in the software would for a regular user for a lay user would spit out options for them so you would as a user you would type in like i want this track but i want it to be 37 seconds and then because of the work that i did it would be able to spit out four or five different 37 second options with that track basically um, and so I did that for a while and I was working on, um, you know, film scores for, for USC students and NYU students and stuff like that. And, and, you know, other little projects, web series, like this is 2007, 2008, nine. And so it's, you know, very early days of YouTube, very early days of, of a lot of like online video and digital video and stuff like that. That's widely shareable and so people are starting to make web series and um i, I but i was always a libertarian uh, i kind of worked my way into those ideas at 14 15 you know and um and i was always interested in economics and i mean i'm not i'm not devoid of those hayekian impulses right like of the, the hayek right. reading no, wonky the, the mind of the mind of an economist, there. the soul of an artist. That's the right. That's the so golden I was always combination. There, but um, but I, uh, you know, that's not what I want to do for a living. It, the funny thing is, I think. Sorry to go on a tangent when I'm already like just in the intro phase here, but like the thing that I've always found fascinating about art and about music in particular, music especially, is that you are shaping 
if you do your job right, anyway, as a composer, you're shaping the way that people feel and think in response to something that you're making. With music, you're doing it with abstract sound. It's insane. It's an utterly ridiculous thing that can happen. Right. Like the idea that humans can listen to sound waves and then convert that into emotion is, it's nuts. It makes no sense, right? Like it's, it's this bonkers thing that is just baked into humanity from, you know, thousands and thousands of years of, of evolution. Um, and I, I find that fascinating. I love telling stories through music. I, I, I still do, but I loved, you know, when I was first growing up and stuff, I loved the idea that you could do that, you know, and it, and it blew my mind that you could shape, you could tell a whole narrative without ever using um, words, you know, or even imagery necessarily. So that I always found like to be a fascinating, inter fascinatingly interesting thing to do. Um, way more so than I wanted to sit and study math and, and learn, you know, Pareto efficiencies and all the other things that you would, you would learn, you know, in, in an econ degree or, or anything like that. So that, that always fascinated me a ton, but I had all that other stuff in there. And when I, when I moved to LA, you know, I, I moved there, um, you know, in 2008 and, you know, this is kind of the height of the financial crisis and all the other things that are going on in 2008. And I'm starting to get in, into conversations with people in Los Angeles. And the conversations I'm having are, are, are I mean, to put it as politely as I can, they're disheartening, right? Like, well, I was in Orange County during that time. So I had those same conversations more or less. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking to all these people who are talking about how the government basically just needs to take over the banks and it needs to like start buying businesses and, and really like th this is full on like properly like definitionally socialist stuff that people are packaging as like common sense when I'm in Los Angeles and I'm like, Whoa, that's first of all, wildly misdiagnosing what went wrong here. Like their understanding of the, of the financial system, the banking system. And you know, there's, there's no, indication that they understand the regulatory factors that went into the financial collapse. There's no indication that they understand the federal reserve or, or even how money works, right? Like there's, there's none of that. And then I start looking around for what I could use to help some of these friends of mine understand some of these ideas. And there's nothing, there's just absolutely nothing. Like the closest there, there was at the time, Reason was just barely getting off the ground. Reason TV was just barely getting off the ground at that moment. None of my friends are going to read, not in LA, but none of them are going to read articles, right? None of them are going to like listen to an hour long lecture or a two hour long lecture. That was the other thing that you could find is, is lectures, you know, historical lectures from Mises or Fee or, you know, whoever, right? I mean, you could, you can find some of that stuff online. I mean, it was asking people to go take a college class yeah. with no credit. That's really what you, the position that you were in yeah. at that time. Yeah, you're now asking people to do a whole bunch of homework that they have no interest in doing and that is not fun for them to do to learn the thing that only I care about. Right? Well, and part of what part, I think what people don't remember about that time is now I think 
there's at least a sense in the culture of there's different explanations for the crisis and there's kind of a free market explanation and they might not really be clear on what that is. But at the time, no, there was, it was just taken as self-evident that this was a failure of the free market. And so you weren't just asking people to sit through a college lecture. You were asking them to listen to a lecture about something that everybody thought was self-evidently not true. It was just, you, you couldn't even get that ball started. Yeah, and and I had I had I had a hard time convincing my best friends of this stuff, right? I had a hard time even talking to them about these things, and so it was fairly apparent to me, like pretty early in that process, that like there was no hope of convincing anybody that didn't care about me or know know me or trust me or any of that kind of stuff. So then I had I actually had sort of a, a defining epiphany moment, uh, epiphany moment, but just sort of a, a, like a really important defining moment in the shift for me away from doing music stuff to doing video production in the, in this kind of world as a career was, um, my roommate at the time was working for a, uh, a movie trailer company in Los Angeles and they were, because this is actually how it works and nobody really realizes this. The, the owner of that company was very close with Hil- Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton. And they, and Hillary was at the state department at the time. So she contracted my buddy's company to produce a bunch of videos for the state department. And I watched as my roommate worked on this incredibly high end, incredibly expensive promo for something actually fundamentally meaningless at the State Department. Like the State Department couldn't have cared less about this video. It was basically about get, gathering a little bit more support for foreign aid in Africa. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this video. Matt Damon narrated it. <laughs> it, it was, and I'm watching this thing going like, here's this that exists that is meant to persuade and convince people to do this thing that is getting, they don't even care about and they're spending $200,000 on. And then there's nothing that I can see on the other side that I could use to even try to tell the stories of why, you know, not only why the, the financial collapse isn't what people think, but also like, basic concepts about spontaneous order and epistemic humility and like the, the use of knowledge in society. All of these things are crazy important to me. I'm trying to explain why central planning doesn't work, but I have no stories to tell. And I also have like nothing that I can show Americans that would be resonant on why like communism is a horrifying disaster for people and why socialism around the world is actually causing problems. Like I don't have anything. So I start just doing it right and and some of that was I, I had a little bit of background in that from not only from grad school but also I had worked as a video editor just as a job before when I was in college um, which I did because I wanted to because I knew I wanted to go into film music so I thought it would be behoove me to learn a little bit about film editing and how you do that just as an aside, like, I think that's such an important point. Like I get a lot of young people ask me for career advice and my view is kind of just build a toolkit of things that interest you for the moment. And you you have no idea how you'll assemble them, but if you have an interesting toolkit, 
you'll be able to assemble them in interesting ways rather than let me compete to be one of the top 1% of, you know, guys who can do Excel spreadsheets for Wall Street. Like, not that I have anything against Wall Street, but that's a game that's very hard to play. And for most people, not the most exciting game to play. But just like, uh, like my career was built on a whole bunch of random skills that I happened to put together out of weird interests. Yeah. Well, and mine, mine too, to a large extent. I mean, it's, it's been um, inside a specific track. So I think, you know, if you look back on it, you would see it's a pretty clear trajectory towards like broader creative director and producer and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like it has been built around all, all of these extraneous interests too, like, like psychology and economics. And, um, you know, now I have, sort of expanded that into neuroscience of art and things like that that I'm really fascinated by. And, and so th- there's all these little pieces. Like when I was a kid, I wanted to be um, an evolutionary biologist. And that didn't, that, and then I you know, kind of found music and went that direction instead, obviously. But the interest in how people became what they are never really left. And the interest in why people act in certain ways, which really for me is the economics piece. It's also psychology, but like economics is a little bit more interesting to me in a lot of ways because it is the more tangible application of of human action, right? It's not like psychologists spend a lot of, and actually I don't mind the field. There are a lot of people who kind of hate psychology as a thing. I obviously I would prefer better methodology to study a lot of that stuff than it tends to have. But, um, what psychologists spend a lot of time like sort of thinking about thinking, whereas economists spend a lot of time watching human behavior and seeing what people are actually doing, you know? And so you end up with, especially in the Austrian conception, you end up with like observations that come from an understanding that people act in order to fulfill some kind of desire that they've got. And you don't spend a lot of time going like, well, he acted against his best interest or he didn't, you know, do this or whatever you go. Well, he revealed a preference there, right? We talk about these things like we know, like you and I could just look at somebody and say, this is what you should do. Purely based on what we would want to do or what we think the best outcome is, but we have no idea what's going on inside that person's head. And I think the good versions of economics, which I would, you know, kind of limit to Austrian and Austrian influenced marginal revolution kind of territory stuff recognizes that everybody has individual subjective values that they choose to pursue. And that it's not my place to determine for you what's the right course of action. So anyway, all that stuff still interesting to me, but I wanted to do art for a living and it, it was only maybe you know, 10 years later, sort of down that path that I figured out how to merge all that stuff together. So how does that actually, what's the turning point where, okay, I'm going to set out and actually help create the kind of content that I've been starving for myself? Well, that, the, the impetus for it was that, like watching my buddy make the, the thing for the State Department. And then I start making some little things. What, changed really I mean it's kind of a confluence of stuff it was like a little bit necessity because you know and and on a couple different levels because there's economic necessity like the um you know things are still pretty bad in 2008 2009 like and people don't remember that now a ton but like it wasn't like 
I think we're going to experience the same moment right now, to be honest. But like, you know, 2007, everything collapses. And then it's not like 2009, everything is like all peaches and rainbows, right? Like things are still not great. So the software company I was working for, um, when I first got, like between when I first got interviewed for the job and when I actually got the job, uh, the role changed and the salary changed. So it was going to be like, I don't remember, like full time, like 60,000 a year or something like that. And then it got changed by the time I actually got it to like 35 hours a week max and like $45,000 a year. That's less. You know? And so there was, and I still wanted to do it because I mean, A, it was a really cool job and B, like there's not a lot else in the, in the industry for somebody kind of young. And, uh, but I still needed to do more gigs, you know? So there's some of it where I was like, I, you know, I need to find a way to to sort of merge these things because I want to get paid to do it. But then so much of it was just personal. It was just, I couldn't stand being in an intellectual vacuum anymore. And I needed to, at the very least, express myself and with any luck, provide some like lightning rods for other people to find and then talk, like talk to those people, you know, in in like a purely selfish way, there's like a little bit of it that's just like, I want to start a conversation that I'm not going to hate by the end of the conversation. That is is a worthy goal. Um, And so I started, you know, I started kind of small. I got a, um, actually fee was the first like actual, so I got a grant from the Moving Picture Institute in 2010 um, to do a couple things on the Bill of Rights, which the Bill of Rights Institute ended up using. And then Fee commissioned me to do a video for them, a, you know, a decade ago. And, you know, and then I started cold, cold emailing people, really. I mean, I just started like cold calling, cold emailing. I, I put together a big spreadsheet of all the kind of Liberty Network organizations I could find or that I could dig up on the internet and then I started digging up whether you know if they had like a communications director I'd try to find their contact information and I would just email them cold and say I'm a video producer I've made these couple things on my own check these out you know I've done a little bit of commission work here's this um, and I've got a pitch for you and so things like you know if it was the tax foundation I would I would like pitch a tax themed video or if it was like the Bill of Rights Institute or IHS, I'd pitch some kind of individual liberty themed video or something like that. And um, Well, I love that. I mean, I love that attitude of not like wait around for a job description or ask for a job. It's like, here, I created something you and your audience might find valuable. You know, are you interested? Like you're coming to them with something positive to offer rather than kind of a desperate ask so that you can take something, which is uh, a, like a really good approach and people don't default to that usually. No, some of that, I don't entirely know where that came from other than kind of the recognition. I think there's two philosophical pieces that play into that. One is just like a sort of a hard work ethos that says like, if you want something, you're going to have to act in order to achieve that thing. The other piece of it is, what I frankly think is really great advice that nobody gives, which is that the world really doesn't owe you anything. Like there's nobody in this space or any other that owes me a job. 
So if I want a job, if I want to be paid for this stuff, I'm going to have, it was just that realization that I'm going to have to find a way to make myself attractive to them and not the other way around. Like the idea that I could go into those environments and just be like, hire me because I'm amazing. Right? Like, well, and how many of these organizations were even doing anything in video by this point? No, they're not. So like that, and that was part of it too, is like, there's literally no job I could apply for. You know, um, I even got, I, tr I tried to apply, um, the, the Coke Institute has a, where I eventually worked, actually, I, I became the, um, video, the head of, I built the video department at the Coke Institute and then I became their video director before I was at Fee. And several years prior to that, I applied for like a associate program position and I was rejected. <laughs> so like, because I was applying as like a video producer and they're like, well, we're basically, we're hiring economists and that's like all we're doing pretty much, you know, what's your, oh, what's your overall take of kind of the state of the Liberty movement generally. And you can obviously, uh, either highlight fee or accept it from the discussion, but like, where are we today versus where you think we should be in terms of storytelling, video, um, making ideas accessible to the public? We are, we're, we're significantly better than we were a decade ago, I, mostly because there's just a lot of people actually trying to do it now. Um, I still think there's a tremendously long way to go. And I think there, there are a couple reasons for that. Um, uh, by the way, I'm crazy proud of Fee. We, we're doing all kinds of stuff that I, um, it's, it, first of all, it's a great fit for me. I don't want to make this like this, a huge Fee plug, but it's a great fit for me um, just from a value standpoint because it is a, it's an organization that is not, so like I'm not an objectivist. I'm not a, uh, party libertarian. I'm not, I'm not really a joiner of any kind, to be honest. Um, and fee for me is like pretty straight down the middle of libertarianism, but it also cares about, um, you know, broader personal philosophy and character and stuff like that. That all means a lot to me. So it, it's a good fit, but also I've had pretty much carte blanche to kind of make the creative at fee into whatever I wanted. And having that creative freedom has allowed me to build a whole bunch of stuff that is really successful and I'm really proud of. And I had never had that ability before. I had a lot of jobs where, you know, a little bit of creative freedom was promised, but then you ended up in a position where you just had layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy to go through and whatever the good vision was at the beginning would get scraped away. It's a really hard thing to run an, an intellectual organization because yeah. if you think about what's required to be impactful, you need a real independence and kind of a singularity of vision on the part of creators, whether they're artists yeah. or whether they're thinkers and not to make too hard a division between those two. Yeah. Um, and yet at the same time, you have to have a certain institutional integrity and you're mm -hmm. spending money on something. You want to know, does this make sense? Is everybody on board? And I think there's this tension is very hard to get right. And I've seen organizations that genuinely wanted to get that trade off right yeah. and just completely fail. And so, I mean, that, that's, that's heartening to hear that, that at least in your case, you know, that they were able to honor 
the idea of we're hiring somebody that we have confidence in their vision and we're going to let them execute their vision rather than second guess it and make them jump yeah. through a thousand hoops. And it's been, it's been incredibly beneficial. And it's something that I speak about a lot when I talk to people about building successful creative teams, because having freedom, even inside my team, I try to encourage a tremendous amount of creative freedom. And what I'm always looking for is are the best ideas from whoever, wherever they come. And so what I've, I've really tried to do, and I hope all my people would agree that we've done this fairly successfully, is that, that like, I, it's very open door for me. Like, if you think that something that I've made or, or an idea that I had can be improved, I want the better idea. And so that requires a, a flexibility in terms of style and language and acceptance that people aren't all going to come in like, and, and by the way, I don't want them to come in like couching their language and like, well, this is, it's, it's good, but like, what if we did? No, I just, give me your good ideas, right? And so we, we kind of have that ethos here, which, you know, a lot of corporate environments and a lot of intellectual environments don't really like either, which is, you know, this very kind of no holds barred, you know, like tear it down and let's build it up and, and let's not have any restrictions on how we are challenging each other to make better and better work. And that, that's always been tough as well. But I think part of it has always been a challenge for, there's nobody in this space, and this is where I would go into the kind of the more negative part of my thoughts on this, is that there, there are very few people, if not kind of no one, who's not actually running a, you know, a creative agency who actually has that background. You know, everybody who runs all of these organizations is either an economist or a lawyer or like, you know, they maybe have a master's in, or a doctorate in public policy, you know, but there's nobody who came out of entertainment or the arts or music or anything like that who now lead a lot of these organizations. So when they come in, they don't really always have a good understanding of what it takes to run a a creative communications shop. And so if you work inside that environment, you are like a department inside this larger entity that doesn't actually care that much or really understand what you're doing. So it becomes very difficult in that environment to, to create really good stuff because they, I mean, there are a lot of issues with that. Like most people, <laughs> I've been Sorry, I'll go on another tangent. But I've been oh. watching way too much HGTV lately. Um, I'm stuck inside. I'm looking at other people's houses is basically what's happening. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'm watching Property Brothers and stuff like that. And, they, you know, they go out and they build homes for people. And they go into these, these like, terrible homes that need to be renovated. And they sit there and they try to talk to their client. And they go, well, look, I'm going to tear down this wall. And then I'm going to blow out the back of this room. And then we're going to have the kitchen's going to open up here. And I'm going to put these countertops. And all these people are staring at these things just going like, this is a hideous room. The, the paint color's ugly. And the crown molding sucks. And it, none of this looks right to me. Why did you bring me here? It's terrible. And they're like, no, no, look past all of that and see what it's going to be, right? People, everybody struggles with that. And so when you show somebody a, a creative project 
or not even like if you just present an idea, they're already going to have a tremendously difficult time understanding the totality of the vision. So you have to get really good at communicating that vision to people in that environment. And then also even like when you're halfway through and there's like, like I've had review meetings on videos, tons of them where I've put placeholder graphics that say, you know, visual effects shot that needs to be included here, whatever, you know, or like B-roll doesn't exist. And I've had review meetings where the execs and the organizations that I've been working with have come in and I've, and I've, before we've even started, I've said, just prepare yourself. There are some black spaces that just have B-roll on them. That'll all get covered over with great shots. We're going to go out and shoot this and whatever. And then at the end, like the first piece of feedback is, there are a bunch of black screens in there. I don't understand what was all that stuff. Why did, why did that just say B-roll? That didn't make any sense. And I go. Ed Catmule, who runs Pixar, wrote this amazing book, Creativity Inc. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you read it. But I have part of, I love it. Yeah, part of his whole like approach is that ideas are fragile. Creativity is very fragile because every idea starts out bad. And yeah. he has the, they have this phrase at Pixar going from suck to non-suck. And it's every, you know, movie that you've seen, whether it's Up or Wally, that's that you just think is magical started out as something that could have been easily crushed if it wasn't nurtured in the right way, which meant both that you're giving straightforward feedback about what's not good about it, as you pointed out. I, when I worked at the Ayn Rand Institute for 11 or 12 years, one of the reasons, one of the most positive things about it was that people were able to give very frank, critical feedback without it ever feeling personal. It was yeah. always, this is about the idea, this is about the, you know, the success at expressing the idea and persuading somebody, go improve it, because it's, you know, it's, it's not working. And, you know, and then the other side is, um, you know, so you have the one side of you need to be able to give that frank feedback, but you also just can't kill good ideas. And that's, um, and that's hard, but particularly when, like, as you say, people are not from a creative background, it's just a very foreign thing. And, yeah. and so I think like my own personal view is that um, I think organizations are hugely important for things like education uh, important for things like if you're talking about like influencing policy on Capitol Hill, you know, Definitely. if you're kind of have mainstream views and you can, you know, move the policy two inches in your direction. But if we're thinking about big sweeping change, I think it's mostly driven by persuasive, captivating individuals and organizations can help that. They can help nurture them when they're young, they can help fund mm -hmm. them and so on. But there's a lot of independence that you need. And uh, I'm always surprised, put it this way, I'm not surprised when organizations can't execute on it, I'm totally, you know, surprised and in awe when they can. Yeah, me too. And for the, for those same reasons, I mean, it's very, very hard to accept, especially if, I mean, you, you said this earlier, like you have people who, and it's perfectly reasonable. They have to think about their budget. They have to think about what they're going to be able to sell to donors later, you know, and donors are going to have just as hard time visualizing it as, whoever the development people are, if the development people can't understand the vision, then the donors certainly aren't going to be able to understand the vision. Right? So if, if you have a, a project that needs a year to really fully bake, right? And, and that is true a lot. You, you know, people, one of the mistakes that I think people make a lot, especially on YouTube is 
well, on any kind of social media especially, is the assumption that you can create a, a singular viral piece that will then like jumpstart your entire media operation, right? Like that doesn't happen. Like even when you have a viral hit early on, none of the ways that any of the social media algorithms work is, okay, now we're going to throw tons and tons of viewers at you. Usually it's the opposite. I was just reading about how TikTok basically will almost like, they really do everything in their power that your first video or couple of videos you post get kind of viral views. Yeah. And then now you're hooked and you're chasing it like a high, but it, it, it now it's not going to push you unless you're actually actively doing more. And that's the thing. If you look at the way that you build YouTube channels or the way that you build a presence on any kind of social platform, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, wherever it's consistent effort consistent high quality effort over time, right? It, it's like that for everything in life, but for some reason people don't think it applies to creating, you know, Instagram posts, right? Like, you know, everybody knows that if you wanted to be a successful lawyer or a successful doctor, it's going to be incremental progress and you're going to have to do high quality work over a prolonged period of time in order to build a reputation that gets you, you know, huge clients and whatnot. Everybody, nobody would debate that, right? But everybody still assumes that there is a similar kind of shortcut that you can take to, you know, getting big on YouTube. And there really isn't. Like, you just have to do good work and you have to do a lot of it and you have to do it over a long enough period of time that your audience trusts that every time you put out a new piece, they're going to like it, you know? I was reading a book by... um. I'm going blank in his first name. I think Russell Brunson, who created ClickFunnels, which is like a marketing tool. But he was talking about, or maybe it was the guy who wrote the forward to his book. You know, I discovered Game of Thrones in like its, you know, second to last season or something. If you have something as big as Game of Thrones, and yet there's many people who are not discovering it until it's had, you know, 10, 20, 30 episodes. Yeah. What do you think you're going to be doing by sticking a few videos on YouTube? Like, discovery takes quality over time, as you're saying. And I think having that expectation is important because a lot of what I'm trying to help people do is people who want to create careers as thought leaders, as people who express ideas for a living. You, you, that's why you should be starting as soon as possible, like not letting fear keep you, oh, once I'm perfect, then I'll launch myself onto the world. No, like, you know, you should be developing your audience since as early as you can. And, you know, over time, then it's you also, actually have a chance. Man, I've, I've had so many conversations with people that have worked for me over the years who, who and it, we all feel this way, right? When you, when you have a, a thing you've made and you're not very happy with it because there's that, that I actually used to have, Ira Glass had this big long thing about where when you start, you know, everything sucks and then you just get, you just do it, you do it again and you get a little bit better. I used to have his whole thing like on my door, on my office door. I don't, I don't anymore, but, but that's, it's advice that I've given to people a lot where it's like, there's the gap between what you're, what you see in your head and what you've actually executed. And so for a lot of people, that's really disheartening because it's like, well, I want to, you know, I want to play, you know, like I want to play drums like John Bonham, but I can't, you know? And so I just give it up. Right. I, because I, I spent three days working on this and I couldn't get there. Well, it's never going to happen. But the reality is you just have to start getting comfortable with the parts that suck. And like you said earlier with Catmull's book, like you just, 
incrementally suck a little bit less and a little bit less. And then at some point you actually tip over and you're like, okay, it's, it's good. And it's a, it's a little better than good. And it's now it's even better than that. And, and keep pushing that, that angle as, as long as you can. But it's true, especially for people who start out that that, that gap is painful for a lot of people and it's uncomfortable and it's frustrating. And, and, well, you know, I think everybody who's ever actually made it past that has been there and it, we've all felt that like, Oh man, I am not nearly good enough to do this. But if you persevere and you keep going through it at some point you will, cause so much of it is just time and practice and, you know, and mentorship, I think, but, at the same time, I mean, you can now mentorship means something totally different than it did when I started out. There was nobody to teach me how to do video stuff, really. I mean, like the people that I literally worked with in person. Now you can right. go on YouTube and watch hundreds of hours of, of great tutorials. And Well, and that's you know. literally the whole purpose of what I'm doing because in the realm of people who want to be professional communicators of ideas, um, there, I found that it was invaluable to have mentors giving me personalized feedback. And I thought, well, if we're going to scale the influence of the Liberty movement, we need everybody to have that to the extent possible. And not everybody can go work at fee or the Ayn Rand Institute or right. wherever, you know, that you can, you know, get that. And so it's all right. Well, how do I basically get everything out of my head onto the internet? How do I create access to me by as many people as possible and access to other thinkers. And so that's kind of the inception behind everything I do is like, we need to have basically mentorship on demand and at scale. I'm really curious to hear uh, your thoughts and just kind of stepping back and thinking about stories and communication at, at a broader level. What, what do you think about as like the key, some of the keys to effectively communicating ideas that um, kind of guide how you do your work? And step, steps like one, two, and three is know your audience. I mean, really, it, it, it starts entirely for me with who am I talking to to begin with? Because the level of their understanding, the, the values that they bring to the table, like into the conversation, really, really matter. You know, um, the, the, I'm sure you've, you've probably read, you know, a lot from, Jonathan Haidt and the sort of heterodox Academy folks and, and, um, fee, when I came to fee, part of the reason I came to fee was to run a multi-year messaging and analytics research project, which we ended up calling year. If actually, if your audience is interested in the report, the report from the whole thing's 160 pages long or so, but it's, but I, which of which I wrote maybe 80 or 90 pages and it's, um, at fee.org slash year. And, um, is that Y E A R? Yeah. Y E A R. Uh, and one of the things that we studied was, um, Arnold Kling's three languages of politics, which I, I think is like, we, we did a whole lot of work on that where what I, what I did actually is I created about 75 different videos, um, in, in like, so there were 75 total, but there were 25 stories. So we did 25 different stories about different themes, different subjects. So some were about occupational licensing, some were about um, just general overregulation, some were about, uh, and they were all narratives, uh, the little short animated videos that we did. And um, 
you know, did stuff on environmentalism and, and healthcare and education and all kinds of stuff. And, and um, we, each story we split out into three different, um, three different messaging strategies. So one we rewrote explicitly to be for a progressive audience, one for a libertarian audience, and one to a conservative audience using Arnold Twain's three languages theory as a basis for how he wrote those. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but Kling suggests, which we tested and, and frankly really confirmed pretty strongly, that conservatives tend to have a framework, a narrative framework of, of civilization versus barbarism. So like enemies are at the gates, civilization needs to stand athwart those enemies, right? And you see this with crime, and with immigration and all of these kinds of things where it's the conservative ethos is very driven by this narrative of like, we're the civilizing force. These are the barbarians out there. We need to prevent them from getting in and ruining our civilization. Right. And by the way, I don't think this is entirely political. I think if you think about the way that people have responded to coronavirus, you see this like conservative impulse rise up of like the virus is the barbarian threat. And now we need to unify our civilization and attack every aspect of that to maintain our, our civilization. So I think that that mindset kind of plays out in different ways. The progressive version of that is oppressor versus the oppressed. So they see, you know, uh, unfairness as this super important value. And, and so if they see somebody who has a different status in life or different levels of wealth or all of those kinds of things, they see that, that, you know, um, the man versus the little guy, right? And then the libertarian is, is the autonomy versus control and coercion kind of access. So it, for, for the libertarian, the, the response is much more driven by that. It's driven by like, you know, personal freedom and individuality and all those things. And some of these things are sort of, you know, they, they feel a little bit obvious if you just kind of observe. But we did all this message testing, and like I said, so we, we took all these 25 different stories and we rewrote them to appeal to these different groups. And the data really strongly confirmed that like when, it, when we would write, we would then show them to all the different groups. So the progressive ones, when we showed them the conservative or the libertarian ones, like no clicks at all, right? No views, you know, no time watched, any of that stuff. Then you show them the progressive ones and it's like 300% higher. Right. And then same thing with the conservatives and libertarians. If you show them a progressive one or, you know, a conservative one, you show the wrong group, the wrong message, they turn it off and they don't like it. Right. So that's crazy, crazy important is thinking about who, who are you talking to and how are they going to actually listen to you in the first place and thinking about what language they like to use and what, and it's not even so much about, the specific terminology, but it's about the tone of it. And that's hard to convey to people, I think, you know, um, and especially if you mix that into the Heights moral taste buds and the moral frameworks stuff that he's done, you can kind of hone in on a little bit of this. Cause like, if you think about progressives caring a ton about fairness and care versus harm, you know, if you produce a piece of content that feels uncaring, or that feels like it's justifying some, some inequity or some unfairness, they're going to shut off and not listen to you at all. You know, so starting your, your 
attempt at storytelling with really deeply listening to your audience and, and putting yourself in the mindset of your audience, I think is the, like, absolutely the most important thing. And then yeah. from there, it's actually just a lot of stuff that you would read in a screenwriting book. It's dramatic structure and character driven stories and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, no. And I mean, that's, the, I mean, the cling and heightened way of thinking about, you know, the kind of language of values that different groups use, like, that's something I want to explore in a lot more detail, because I have, um, I, I think one wrong way that that's taken, and I'm not referring to your work or fees, because I have not looked into it in this regard, is often, but I have seen like conservative groups try to do this. They think, okay, well, we'll just dress up what we say in the kind of language of the other side, and it comes off as condescending and appeasing, yeah and non-genuine and part of my view which is different than i think some libertarians that i've heard talk about this is um that i think there are genuine clashing values that are often at stake between people who support and oppose freedom but that but values in my view they exist in a hierarchy and so what i think often happens is most people who um see themselves as opposing freedom actually have a commonality of values with people who support it but not at the level that's often discussed so if you take something like people who say oh i'm opposed to inequality yeah some of them are diehard egalitarians who want to knock down people who are successful and i don't think you can do much with that but most people see inequality is reflecting certain injustices as causing people to suffer unnecessarily. And so if you can speak to a, a higher level commonality of values, you can kind of overcome this gap, but you have to realize that where their starting point is. And I think that goes to what you're saying is they're starting from the top of mind concern is going to be something like empathy or, or you know, one of yeah. the, one of the values cling talks about. And so what you really have to do is have your own internal map of your audience and figure out where, where do we clash? Where do we, where do we meet? And then how do I kind of govern this complicated uh, intersection of common values and clashing values in order to connect with them and hopefully persuade uh, um, uh, them to move further in my direction? I, you're, you're totally right. And, and to that point, by the way, I, I do want to make that clear because you can't, you can't just take the same core argument and like use different wording right? Like that's not sufficient. And it's something that I actually struggled with a little bit when we started the messaging project, because a lot of times, and not just at Fee, but people at a lot of different organizations I've worked for over the years do tend to think of messaging as language. They think of it as if we use these words instead of those words, people will like it more or they will do this. And there's a, there's a degree to which that's true, right? There are some words that you can use that will inherently offend an audience in a way that like, you know, bad, bad words, right? Like, like swear words and stuff you want to avoid if you're trying to appeal to grandmas and, and you know, mothers of, you know, teenagers or whatever. Not so, my great grandmother. <laughs> mine, but, but point taken. Know. But you know what I mean? Like there are, there are, there are some words that you want to avoid and you want to, you want to, you know, kind of massage or whatever a little bit to, to do what you want to do. That's not the core of what messaging is. The core of what messaging is, is the idea that you're trying to convey and the tone in which you're conveying it. And if you're conveying it in a inauthentic, dismissive, sarcastic, derisive way that shows that you have contempt for the audience that you're trying to speak to, there's no way in hell they're ever going to listen to you. 
Let me, let me just pa- underline that because th- this is so important. I see this all the time. And it was actually a lesson that I learned because one of my mentors, Ankar Gatte, pointed out, like I was trying to develop my style as a writer and not just be like a boring kind of standard, you know, whatever. And so I was injecting it with what I thought was humor and sarcasm. And he pointed out something that I should have known, which was sarcasm assumes that the audience agrees with you about this and about this evaluation. Yeah but you're, you're trying to persuade them. Right. So like it, it makes no sense. All you're really doing is turning them off and alienating them. And I think humor is very good, but what happens is we're often see as our models, like, you know, you'll see somebody like um, Ben Shapiro, he has a huge audience and he seems to have some pro freedom views and there's, you know, a certain kind of humor and sarcasm uh, and Ben's not the worst person, but he's just somebody who comes to mind. And then you think, Oh, well I can copy that was Ben is not, convincing people of conservatism. He's no. tapping into an inbuilt audience of yeah. millions of people. Yeah. If you're trying to convince people out of the mainstream ideas, that, that you're dead on arrival if that's kind of how you're, how you're approaching things. You're, yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's the thing. Like, and it's, it's, it's misleading to a lot of executives in this space because, or donors too, really, because what you see, like Ben Shapiro can put up huge numbers, right? Dennis Prager can put up huge, huge numbers on views and shares and all the things that a lot of people tend to measure success in terms of media production on. But what they're not really taking into account is that he's putting up huge numbers because he's producing red meat for a very specific pre-existing worldview. He's not moving people in that direction. He's just tapping. It's the same phenomenon that you see with like Rush Limbaugh or, I mean, you know, there's any number of, of, you know, Michael Moore, you could, you could do the same story on the left, right? Like you, you have all these people who rabble rouse, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, doesn't speak to anyone outside of her tiny little I mean, it's, it's not that tiny, actually. It's a large number of people, but, like, it's a sliver of the overall society. She speaks to those people incredibly well, and so her videos inside that space get very, you know, well-shared and well-liked and loved and all that stuff. But everybody else hates her. So, you know, the, the, the thing that I've, I've thought about for years and years and years is, like, the goal should never be the most number of likes in the absence of thinking about how many dislikes you've got. So the goal should be the, the net gain, not the, like the, the raw total, because you can have like a massive number of, you know, 10 million views and 10 million likes or whatever, and then have 15 million dislikes that you're ignoring over on the other side. And if you're not doing that double-sided accounting, you're like really doing yourself a disservice in terms of what you think you're accomplishing. And I've seen that a ton, which is weird. Well, one of the things I I work with uh, Alex Epstein, who wrote The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, and we're very big on thinking about how do you actually assess genuine persuasion and influence. And what we found is that you can look at certain quantitative measures, and that's important. But at the end of the day, you really need a lot of qualitative measures. For example, one of the things we get is 
a lot of emails from people who say, I was an environmentalist. I'm from the left. I still consider myself from the left. And you changed my mind about this. And what we realize is that like all of these PR firms who do these focus groups, they're not getting those results. So like you, you, and you wouldn't see that if you just looked at raw numbers. But you know, when you're seeing over the course of a year, hundreds of those emails, hundreds of those one-on-one conversations, you go, okay, this is, this is the right track. And then you can start to think about, all right, what, like you can even ask them as individuals, well, what resonated with you? What didn't? And so I think there is this, there's a measurement problem um, that, you know, there's, it's, it's very famous in business that picking the wrong metrics causes you to optimize for the wrong things. And right. so you just have to be so careful, you know, if you're comparing like, hey, look at our, our views are going up. Well, are we just really exciting the libertarian base or the, you know, the, the people who want to see us like, you know, make these kind of slam dunk arguments that actually convince no one. You just, it, it's very, very hard to assess these sorts of things. I, I, uh, I read our YouTube comments all the time and I respond to a ton of them. I, I respond to probably maybe a hundred or more a week and we have thousands since I've been at Fee, since I've been building the, the YouTube channel at Fee, we've gone from thir thir literally 13,000 subscribers and completely dead to now we're at about 186,000, somewhere in there. In how many years? Uh, two and a half. That's amazing. Three years. That's um, amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and we have 80, I forgot what I, what I just, I just looked at it a couple weeks ago, maybe like 80,000, maybe closer to 90,000 comments in that time. And I have read many thousands of them. And I strongly recommend people read their comments. And it's funny because every time I tell that to people, they're like, but aren't YouTube comments like the dregs of the internet? Isn't this is horrible and whatever. It's actually not. I read fantastic comments from people constantly, even comments that are challenging and people who disagree with us. My view on comments is that if you are trying to engage in the discussion, regardless of whether or not you're rude or if you use bad language or you, know, you insult somebody or whatever else, I'm not too worried about that. What I'm worried about is whether or not you are, you are actively engaging with the discussion. If you're trying to challenge a point, if you're trying to reinforce a point, if you're replying to somebody and getting into that discussion. So I would probably reply, I mean, I thank a lot of people for like the positive stuff, but if somebody comes in with a kind, it happens a lot. Somebody comes in with a comment like you were just describing, like I never thought about that that way before and thank you for this video. You totally changed my perspective on this. I immediately like jump in with incredible praise for that person. I'm like, I am so glad you are here. I appreciate that you've taken the time out of your day to watch this video and, and to think about it. And if you ever have any questions, like hit me up in the comments and I'll get right, right back to you. And I, like, I want to be open to those things. The same thing with challenges. Like anybody comes in with a genuine, like, I don't think that's right because of this, this, and this. I want to be in there responding to that person saying like, I appreciate your perspective, but you know, here's this, this, and this reason why I think that this is correct or incorrect or whatever it is. And, and I, I, for me, I think that's so important, not only because I think it's really critical to audience development because now you're a human to them, but also I think it's crazy important because that's how I learn what those people are thinking. 
And I would never learn that if I didn't read that stuff. I'm, I'm so on board with the qualitative piece of that. It's so well, crazy important. And I'm so happy you raised this example because it's kind of like just the standard thing. Everybody thinks they're so safe. Oh, don't read your YouTube comments. But even set aside, you know, the, the, the fact that sometimes it can be hard for you to get negative feedback. Sure. Um, the, I think the deeper thing is, and I'll, I'll just put myself out there, you know, for a long time I was writing for the public and like, I just sort of like would once in a while respond to some of the people on the social media who would engage with my work. And then I would wonder like, why isn't my audience growing? And certainly there are other flaws, which is why I like said, Oh, I need to up my toolkit. And that's what I spent the last three years yeah. doing more behind the scenes. Yeah. But the other thing was like, you don't have the right morally to ha expect a big fan base. If you're not uh -huh. nurturing the people who are there and engaging with you, trying to reach out to you. And like you said, that's harder to measure. Like how is having this, you know, conversation on YouTube going to increase my fan base? No, that's wrong. The question is how do I nurture the relationships that are there and mm -hmm. for their own sake, because those having big yeah. numbers doesn't mean anything except for a lot of little numbers of people who give a damn what you're doing and what you're saying. Yeah. And so my attitude now is if you are going to take two seconds out to say anything to me, I'm going to do everything I can to at least acknowledge it and show, yeah. Hey, I appreciate that. And if, if I can do more, or if there's more meat to it, I'm going to be there because like, that's what the game is all about. And that's why I'm here. You know, I, I said this kind of at the beginning, like when I first started putting out videos, my goal was to foster conversations. And if now I am putting out videos that get 2 million views and I'm not still trying to have a conversation with people, I, I fit personally, I probably failed to a large extent. Because the whole point of this is that we create opportunities to change somebody's perspective. And that does not happen by watching a single video. It does not happen by like just having one knockdown argument with somebody and scoring all the points, right? It happens over time through conversation. And it's half of it is also emotional, right? Half of it is, is do I think that this person cares about me and has is honest and is trustworthy and is somebody who I, I think, you know, has a good perspective on the world or is it somebody who I think like doesn't like me, doesn't care about me, you know, is actively trying to see me fail or something like that. Like there's a lot of trust to build that doesn't happen without doing some of that legwork. Also, I was going to say funny thing to me is too, you actually get chances to be to this is going to be ironic coming from me specifically, but to let your hair down a little bit. Um, like I get comments. So the, a couple of videos ago um, on YouTube, I, I just at the front of the video, I said like, it was the first time I've ever said this like really boldly. I, I've said it on AMAs and stuff before, but I said, I read comments all the time and I respond to comments. And then, so I got a flood of comments from people going, Oh, you say you read every comment. Well, you don't. And then I replied to every single one of those. And I'm like, I read yours. Like, I, I see you, bud. Like, so stuff like that, you know, um, it fosters that relationship. It gives you the opportunity to actually, again, humanize yourself. And then by extension, humanize the organization. If you're working for an organization like that, which well, is so crazy important. 
Well, I mean, one of the core mantras I come back to again and again in the show and in my work is that people aren't convinced by ideas. They're convinced by people who embody and advocate ideas. And that goes, that that's, that's, if anything, more true when you're an organization, they connect with somebody at that organization. And if you don't have that kind of personal connection, then you're, you're really done for. And in part, it's because, you know, so you mentioned like they want to know you care about them, but part is like that they want to know what they're getting into. Like you're asking them to enter a new world with new people. And if Mm -hmm. these people are weird or they're mean or they're Mm -hmm. like, they don't seem to, if they view me as just a pawn in their desire to, you know, like I want to convert you child, like that's going to turn certainly good people off uh, or never get them turned on. And so, yeah, I think seeing the game through the lens of ideas are crucial, but it's ideas are, they're not something, they're not this platonic realm out there in the world. They're things that we use to govern our lives, make decisions, make policy decisions. And you can't drop out the fact that like you can't drop out the fact that there's people there and i think there's a tendency to do that especially since i think the liberty movement has been governed by intellectuals who have a tendency to do that yeah i i think your your point about like the platonic ideal thing and what you just said too the liberty movement is filled with people and historically has always been filled with people who do see the world in very in that platonic ideal kind of way. Like they, they create a, an internal world of ideas that is self-sustaining and logically consistent and all of those things, but it largely lives inside their head. And it does not necessarily have to, like the ideal of it anyway, does right. not have to intersect with the real world a lot of the time. It's like, well, if only the government hadn't, and I've and I'm guilty of this too. Like I've said, like if, if the government wasn't involved in, the, I'll just take, you know, random example. Like if the government hadn't set price controls in the forties, we would not be in a situation now where healthcare is, is uh, tied to your employment. Right. Well, as somebody who just found out that it's going to cost more than my apartment to buy individual healthcare going out on my own. Uh, yeah. I, that to me is a very important argument. So it's super important, but also, it's irrelevant to most people, you know, like you have to like be in a, the right situation to explain like, okay, well, let's go back in time and look at like all the things that led to this. But at the same time, most of the people you talk to are living now going like, well, what do I do to solve this problem today? And if the solution that makes the most sense to them is the government just take over the whole thing, it doesn't matter if the government caused the problem in the first place. They don't care about that. They just care about fixing what is today. And so those kinds of things, like you, you have to get outside of that, that idealized world at some point and you have to say like, well, what do people actually care about? The, the humans that I'm actually talking to, what do they care about? And how do I address their concerns? And again, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't go back and tell them that history because I do think that history is important, but it's not going to be the only thing. Like they're not going to go back and go, well, okay, let's just shut it all down then. You know, like let's get no, the, out of there. The thing I always say about history yeah. is it can be one of the most valuable things, but it can often be very hard to motivate people to care. And then it can be more challenging than you think to make it then relevant to, okay, well, what are the steps forward? Because I've had many people, you know, say like, okay, I grant you, like we should have never gotten into this mess, but we're here. So 
Like, like people have, I, I wrote a book on social security and people said, yeah, it's, it's a complete mess, but look, everybody's hooked on it. So like, we just have to accept it and move forward. You can't just say, let's go back to before there was a welfare state. Well, right. um, so uh, let's, and I could do this all day, but let's end on this. Um, like if you're talking to somebody who is either just getting started in their career or just wants to improve their ability as an advocate for ideas, what do you think beyond what we've talked about or maybe including what we talked about is like, here's, you know, one to three, like really valuable things I want you to keep yeah. in mind. The first thing is, and I don't think this will be a surprise, make stuff, make, make all the stuff, like whatever it is that you want to do. If you want to write, if you want to produce videos, if you want to make music, whatever it is, the, the best thing that you can do, especially if you're young is make as much of it as possible and don't worry too much if it's not great. Um, I think more people should adopt the mindset that like if they don't like something about the video that they made, don't get stuck in a loop trying to edit it, set it down, make another thing. Like just keep going, finish things, you know, because Part of making is finishing. And if you don't prove that you can actually go from start to end, you're never going to actually be able to do whatever it is you want to do for a living. So finish it. If you hate it, make it again. Make it better the next time. So that's that's probably one thing. The other thing is something I'll just reiterate, which is like the world the world doesn't owe you anything. So if you want to have the, the job that you want or if you want to um, have a certain career, you've got to be able to demonstrate value in that arena to other people. People will pay you lots of money even if they believe that you're worth it. And if they believe that you are valuable and that you will do things that make their lives better. So just, you know, spend your efforts like trying to create value for other people and all the rest of that stuff, like the success and everything else will come. But don't start with the sense of entitlement. Don't start with the sense of like, well, I make this therefore, you should, you know, give me $10,000. Like, no, we won't. <laughs> but if you make stuff and if you keep making it and if you keep making stuff that other people think is great, then we will eventually. So, yeah. I love it. No, I, I agree totally. And, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, if you're, if you're making stuff and it's bad, it's okay because nobody's going to see it. Mm -hmm. um, but often there's things in there that are good, including people want to see you go through the journey. And if you're, and if you're open about it, like, Hey, I'm learning this. This is my first video. Like I'm trying this out and being experimental and talking about it in social media, not like trying to present yourself as I'm, you know, Mises version 2.0, but like, Hey, I'm, I'm really excited about these ideas and I want to express them. Like people will be understanding and you'll be inspiring to them even if they see, you know, the same flaws in your work you do. So yeah, like, let me, let me add a third thing to that just please. because of what you said there is, is especially starting out humility is crazy important too, because, you know, I think especially as you get older, like for me, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people work for me over the years now and the ones that are great are the ones that are inquisitive and curious and trying constantly to learn. And the ones that are horrible are the ones who think that they know everything already. Because especially as you're young, you find out all this stuff is actually way more complicated than you realize. And there are almost 
invariably the solution that you think is obvious and like, hey man, why don't we just do it this way? There's probably a reason we don't do it that way. Not always. Maybe you have come in and you've cracked a code that nobody's been able to figure out before, but just remember that there's a lot of people who've been there and done this work before you, and maybe you don't know everything. So that's part of it. Like, and to your point, like everybody wants to be a mentor to somebody who is a sponge, but like nobody wants to be a mentor to somebody who thinks that they know everything already. So what I, what I tell people is, look, be cocky about your potential. Like you can know, young people who are going to be great can know that they're badass, but be realistic and humble about where you actually are. And that's what I see in the best people is like they, they have a real confidence about their future, but a real eagerness to, to get to that future, knowing that they're not, not close to there yet. For sure. Well, awesome, Sean. Hey, uh, this was really fun. Good luck in everything you're doing. I, nice. I hope to stay in touch. And yeah, uh, where can people follow you, learn more about your work? Um, so uh, you can find actually almost everything that I do personally, and it's 99% fee at this point because I don't, literally don't have time for anything outside of that. But um, SeanWMalone.com, you can find uh, fee.org slash shows or just fee.org. Um, probably more importantly, just go to youtube.com slash fee online and you will find uh, my, my series out of frame and you'll find links to all the other stuff from there. But uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Awesome, man. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.